Well, good morning, church. My name is Travis Walker. I'm the discipleship pastor here. If I haven't met you, uh, I look forward to meeting you soon. Uh, thanks so much for being here this morning. I'm excited to open God's word with you. I'll get you started. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Ephesians chapter one. I have the privilege of introducing a new series that we are starting today. For this uh, next several weeks, uh, months even, we'll take a little bit of breaks through this time, but we're gonna be looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're gonna do something a little bit different this time. Uh, typically, we just work verse by verse and, and unpack whatever uh, the author lays out for us. This time, we're gonna look at the book of Ephesians with, with some goggles on, if that's okay. We're gonna unpack a theology that is laid out for us in the book of Ephesians, and that theology is union with Christ. We're gonna be looking at a theology that Paul unpacks throughout the entire book. Union with Christ is, um, uh, our tagline for this series is the incredible doctrine you've probably never heard about. Paul throughout Ephesians uses this simple phrase, in Christ, over and over again. And it's very possible that you have read Ephesians, studied Ephesians, and you maybe just took that little phrase for granted, like, oh, in Christ, yeah. But what does he mean by that? We're going to unpack that in this series. And it's the doctrine of union with Christ. And although you may not have never ever heard of the theology of the doctrine of union with Christ, it is the doctrine underneath every other doctrine. It's ironic because we don't talk about union with Christ a whole lot, but yet it is pivotal to your faith. And you might not have even known that. It is something that you have if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. It is something that is true of you, even though you may not be able to articulate it yet. But that's our hope and our desire, is that you will. You'll understand it and love this beautiful and true theology. Union with Christ is just another way of understanding the gospel. It's what happened to you the day you were saved. By believing in Christ, you became united with Christ. So that day, you go back to the day where you professed your faith, you believed in Jesus, you prayed and asked him for, to forgive your sins and to save you. You didn't know it that day, maybe, but something amazing happened to you that day. You became united with him, one with him, and your position eternally changed that day from sinner to saint. And that's the theology of what happened to you that day and what Christ has been doing, God has been doing through all, all history is what we're going to unpack as Paul explains it beautifully in Ephesians. The Scottish theologian John Murray says, in probably a really cool Scottish accent, he would say this, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And that is absolutely true. Union with Christ is the nutshell that encompasses the whole of the gospel. And inside that nutshell is just the beauty and the, and the majesty of all that Christ did for us in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Maybe this will help explain a little bit. Something that I continue to learn, and, for no, and no doubt you're continuing to learn this too. The more that I studied the gospel the more beautiful it becomes. Rather than the more you st study something, maybe the more bored you become with it. Like, I think I've learned it all. 
I think I got it all. Like I've come to the end of what I can study on this. That is absolutely not true with the gospel. The more you study it, the more you dig in, the more you dive in, the more it unfolds. And you're like, wow, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that. Oh, this is a piece of it too. Hopefully for you, this uh, series, that's union with Christ. As we continue to dig and to dive, you'll be like, wow, it's bigger and more beautiful, and more amazing than I un ever understood. I heard the gospel described this way once. The gospel's like the ocean. It's shallow enough or simple enough that babies and children can play in it. Have you ever taken a two-year-old to the ocean? This vast, scary, dangerous ocean, yet they can splash in it, right? And play with it and enjoy it. And they're like, I played in the ocean. But the ocean and the gospel is so deep and so vast that professional explorers and scientists can study it for the rest of mankind's existence and will never find its depth. We'll continue to discover and, and find out more truths and, and amazing attributes of the gospel forever. You'll never get bored with the gospel. You'll never study it to its death. You'll never say like, well, I'm done. I got to move on to something more beautiful, more amazing. You'll never do that. We'll continue to unpack. And so this series, I hope, is us discovering more truths and more beautiful aspects of the gospel that you never knew. So in all reality, the truth is our series, which starts today, is just a continued study of the gospel. That's what we'll just continue to do. And the beauty of it is that we will un unravel and reveal more of its depth, more of its beauty, more of its intricacies. And so I hope to help you go on that adventure of exploring starting today. Well, if you're in the book of Ephesians, I want you to start right in Ephesians chapter one. And I want to wrestle with this question today. Why is union with Christ important? Paul, in his book of Ephesians, talks about it so much, as I hope we'll get to spot out for you in just a second here. But he talks about union with Christ so much. And here's why. Because all of Christianity could be summarized as union and communion with God. All of Christianity. If you wanted to know what Christianity was in just a sentence, like what is Christianity compared to every other religion? What is Christianity? Here it is. All of Christianity can be summarized as union and communion with God. But the most important part is those last two, those last two words, through Christ. That's the means by which it happens. See, every other religion tries to help you understand God, maybe have union with God or maybe communion with God. But only Christianity tells you the actual means by which that happens. And that is through Jesus Christ. So what is union with God? Union is this idea of oneness or closeness, unity, togetherness, to be one with God, to know God. And then the communion aspect of it is to be known or the idea that we can be heard by God and we can hear God. We can have a conversation with God. We can live life together with God and share a meal together with God. Isn't that incredible? Us, creation, has the opportunity to have a relationship with God and a conversation with God. That's the truth of Christianity. That's what we're about. That's what this is all about. That's what the word of God is about, is how mankind can have union 
and communion with Christ or with God, and it's all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And please understand, if you miss either one of those two aspects, if you miss either union with God or communion with God, you miss the Christian understanding of relationship with God. If you just take half of that, like I can commune with God, but he doesn't really know me, that's not Christianity. Or I can have union with God, but I can't really converse with him, that's not Christianity either. Christianity at its core is union and communion with God, and it's all through Christ. This is what makes Christianity utterly unique among any other religion. Only Christians are united to and receive spiritual life from the God they worship. That is not true with Buddha. That is not true with Muhammad or Confucius. Only Yahweh, the God of the Bible, brings us into relationship, into communion through a mediator, Jesus Christ. So as you're in Ephesians chapter one, I hope you're there. I wanna help you see this repeated theme throughout all of Ephesians of this little phrase, in Christ. Because that's where we're gonna be headed for the next several weeks, months, as we look at this beautiful doctrine of union with Christ. Um, as the discipleship pastor here, one of my uh, privileges is to help put resources into your hands, is to tell you about resources, to help you study the word of God better, um, to learn more and to gain more out of it. So I wanna tell you about this resource. It's called the ESV Scripture Journal, and we've made available these for just the book of Ephesians. It's a really neat tool if you're a journaler or an or a note taker. And so inside is just the book of Ephesians on the left-hand side. And then on the right-hand side is just some journal lines. I would really encourage every one of you to pick one of these up. We'll have them at the Connect Center for $3. So bring these with you to, your, to our sermons. You can read, you can underline, circle, highlight. We're gonna highlight all the in Christ passages. And then on the right-hand side, you can journal, write down notes. And then please take this to your small group every week so that you can add to the conversation, that you can dialogue with them and add to the conversation. So if you're interested in one of these, um, we still have some left at the Connect Center, I believe, and we'll continue to make those available to you for $3. But let me show you how often in Christ is, is highlighted and spotlighted uh, throughout this text. Look in verse one. Verse one, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him. Him is obviously a pronoun for Jesus Christ. In him. Verse seven. In him we have redemption through his blood. Look at verse nine. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And then look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That simple phrase teaches us the doctrine of union with Christ, how he is the means to our salvations. Ephesians mentions union with Christ or being in Christ more than any other letter in Ephesians alone, that phrase is mentioned 36 times. And Paul loves that phrase in Christ. He's obsessed with it. He talks about it in every one of his books. And he mentions it through his, his um, letters 164 times. 
Paul loves the doctrine of union with Christ, and he is dedicated to helping his readers understand it. This depth and this, and this incredible width of the beauty of the gospel of union with Christ. So let's not miss it. Let's dive in and study it. But even though Paul talks a lot about this theology, this theology did not originate with Paul. Paul is not the inventor of union with Christ, but instead he's pointing out or highlighting something that's been true throughout the entirety of scripture. He's pointing back to a story that's been, that's been told the entire time. And so what my job is to do today is to help you see this thread that weaves itself through all of scripture called union with Christ or union and communion with God and to help us to see how pivotal it is to our faith. So what I wanna do is I wanna walk you through some of the really well-known Bible passages that you're familiar with and help you to see maybe for a first time, maybe a fresh way of looking at them to see how God has always been about union and communion with his creation and he's always pointed to the means of it, which is Jesus Christ. And it starts in page one of your Bibles. Union and communion through Christ starts in page one of your Bibles in Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, we meet God and God has always existed and God in love creates a world. And in this world, he puts mankind and there's something completely distinct from mankind than any other creation. And that is his imprint is on them. He says that they are made in their image, made in our image, made in the image of God is mankind. And that simple phrase, made in the image of God, teaches about the, the, the truth of that we were made to be in union with God. God creates us, but we're distinct from all other creation and that he calls us his own. He claims us. He puts his imprint on us. He identifies us as his by being made in his image. He wants ownership of us. He wants to rule and reign over us as, as, his cre as our creator. But then he teaches us something differently. If you notice in Genesis chapter one and chapter two, he places mankind in God's garden, in the garden of Eden. And that idea to be placed in the garden of Eden teaches us about God's purpose of communion with his creation. He doesn't just own us. He doesn't just identify us as his. He puts us in a garden so he can have communion with us. Think about the world before the fall. Is the whole earth the garden of Eden? No. There is a garden, and then there is not a garden. And he places mankind specifically inside the garden to be in communion with mankind. So God comes down to the garden and speaks with man and has communion with God, spends, gets to know them, talks to them, discusses with them, lives life with them. We don't know all of that, but what that looked like. But Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us our design was to be in Union with God and communion with God. We are made in the image of God and placed in the garden of God. These two pieces teach us that God's design for mankind has always been union and communion. But then we learn that anything that mars our union with God or communion with God is called sin in Genesis chapter three. Isn't that what sin did? It, it marred our union and communion with God. Sin taints our reflection of God and our connection to God. That's what sin did. 
And that's what sin is. And then the rest of scripture, after mankind is kicked out of the garden, right? You're no longer in the garden. That communion has been broken. You are now outside of the garden in Genesis chapter three. And then the rest of scripture paints this beautiful narrative of God's redemptive plan to get mankind back, to restore union and communion with God. See, once you understand that narrative of God's purpose for union and communion and his ultimate means for restoring union and communion is Jesus Christ, you start to see that narrative all over scripture. So now I wanna point to a few more that show us this story, that teach us this story. And this is not an exhaustive list. One of your small group questions this week is to think of others. Think of other Old Testament stories that teach us about union and communion with God through a particular means. So I'm gonna highlight a few that whisper the story of our need for Jesus. And this week in your small group, I want you to come up with some others. So turn to Genesis chapter seven. This is like a old school sword drill. I'm gonna have you turn to some passages, see how quickly you can find them. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter seven. And this is the famous story of the flood and Noah's ark, okay? So think about this story real quick. Uh, um, sin has devastated the world. It is completely corrupt. Man is sinning continually. And God in his justice understands he's got to clean the world. He's got to start over, start fresh. But God in his love and his sovereignty has a special relationship with one, one man. He still has union with one man. And that man is Noah. Noah is known to be a man of faith who believes in God and has union with God. And God in his love for Noah and his family creates a means by which there would be safety and security. He tells Noah to build an ark. And he tells Noah that inside the ark is safety and security. Outside the ark is utter destruction. If you're in, you're safe. You're protected. You have union and communion with God. If you're outside the ark, utter destruction. And that's... In, Anything outside the ark will face utter destruction. Genesis 7 teaches us the need for union and communion with God through a particular, particular means, an ark. And only inside the ark is there safety and security, peace and protection. So you start to see this idea of, okay, we need a restored relationship with God. We need protection. We need we need God and there's only one means and God provides that means. Now flip to Genesis chapter 12. Another famous story, we even sung a song about it this morning and that's the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is such an interesting character. He finds favor in God's eyes and God makes a, prob a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He makes him a promise of a land, seed, and a blessing and he says, Abraham, whoever is a descendant of yours will have this land. Whoever is in Abraham will receive these blessings. And then, but then verse three of chapter 12 has this really interesting word. Can, can you look at it? Genesis chapter 12, verse three. But then verse three tells us that Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's this entire world filled with people, but there's a particular group of people that will be blessed. And it's those who are in Abraham. Those who are in his family, in his lineage, in his, um, 
uh, descendants will receive these same promises forever and God will keep his promises. And then being Gentiles who live in Ankeny, Iowa, we need to understand who's in Abraham. And so Romans teaches us that there are Gentiles that will be grafted in, who will be brought in. And we are descendants of Abraham as well for those that have received this promise. And so verse three of chapter 12 is true for us as well. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we are blessed. We've received these promises because we are in, Ab in Abraham because of our faith in Christ. All right, turn to Genesis chapter 27. This one is, I think, really fascinating. In Genesis chapter 27, we learn about these two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And you know about firstborns, right? They're spoiled rotten. I'm not a firstborn, so I can say that. I'm the baby. Anyways, firstborns, get all, they get the birthright, and they get the blessing, right? You know how this works. And so Esau, or Jacob, is jealous of his brother Esau. I mean, I would be too. If I was only born a few seconds or minutes later and I got none of the benefits, I think I'd be pretty jealous too. And so Jacob is frustrated, but he doesn't get the birthright and he doesn't get the blessing. So what does he do? He tricks. He finds a way. He makes up his own means in order to receive the benefits, right? And so his brother Esau is hungry, so he makes him some stew, and Esau gives up his birthright for a batch of stew, right? And then later on, their father is about to die, and Esau, being the older brother, is going to receive the final blessing. So his father calls him in and says, I have a word for you. I have a blessing for you. Well, Jacob and his mom hear that this is about to happen, and so they come up with a plan. So what does Jacob do? He puts on this cloak or this hairy coat so that he can look like his older brother, Esau. And so his dad, who's blind, is like, come here, son, touches his arm. She's like, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. Weird story. Anyways, he fools his dad. His dad is convinced that this is, is Esau, and so he gives Jacob the blessing. And so we learn that there's this blessing, there's this reward that is promised to someone through a means, which is the firstborn, but Jacob's a conniver. He's a trickster. He figures out a way. He changes the means in order to get the blessing. You see, Genesis chapter 27 teaches us that if you're able to be clothed in someone else's rights and privileges, you can gain their rights and privileges. If you can change who you are, associate with somebody else, you're able to receive the benefits. This is imagery of exactly what Christ does for us. We do not deserve any of the rights, privileges, or benefits of being a son of God. But yet because of Christ's righteousness and his perfect perfection, he willingly died on the cross for us and now he clothes us in his righteousness. So we don't have to trick, we don't have to steal, we don't have to connive, we receive, even though we did not do any of the work. And then in Exodus chapter 12, another familiar story, this is the battle between Moses and Pharaoh and the 10th plague. You remember the 10th plague is the one that breaks the camel's back. It's the death of the firstborn son of everyone. And we're told in the story that God tells the nation of Israel that utter destruction is going to come across the entire land, but there is one means of protection. There is one means of safety. Take the blood of a spotless lamb and paint the doorpost of your house. And anyone who is inside the house 
will be saved. Utter destruction is gonna come across the land, but anyone who believes and anyone who listens and is inside the house will be saved. Those that are covered by the blood of the lamb will be saved. This helps us to see that God has a desire for union and communion with mankind and has provided a means of safety and security. And only through God's means is there protection and safety. And that was through the spotless lamb. As we go through the book of Exodus, we learn about the building of the temple, the tabernacle, and the tent of meeting. And there's a really interesting story as they're preparing the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies. And who's allowed to go into the Holy of Holies? Only the priest. After he has, he has done his rituals, that he has cleansed himself, is he allowed to go in? So there's no union or communion with God, only through the means of the Holy of Holies. And you have to obey the rules in order to get in. And then in chapter 33 of Exodus, there's this really interesting story. Moses has a special relationship with God. And God tells Moses how he can have union and communion with him. And in chapter 33, it describes the tent of meeting and how Moses is able to ha continue to have union and communion with God, but only through a specific means. Verse 7 of Exodus 33 says this, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, union and communion. As a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Union and communion restored, but only through a particular means the tent of meeting. If you flip to Numbers chapter 21, really bizarre story. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is because I'm going to reference it later. Numbers chapter 21, there's these serpents that are biting the Israelites and they're poisonous, right? And they're going to die. And they, they call out to Moses and say, is there any way to be saved? And God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole and lift it up. And anyone who looks at the pole will be saved. Again, Safety and security, union and communion, only through a particular means. We're going to come back to that one at the end, but I did want to reference it. Maybe my favorite is 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is the famous story of David and Goliath. You know it. And I'm not a war buff. I don't know a whole lot about war, but this is how it happened in that particular story. Each nation, instead of sending out their armies, right? Thousands, hundreds of thousands of men to fight. They picked somebody to represent them. So the Philistine nation picked Goliath and Goliath was their representative. He was a giant. He was a, a huge dude. And the nation of Israel had to pick somebody to fight Goliath and they had nobody. Saul wasn't gonna do it. None of the mighty men of valor were gonna do it. So this young man named David decides, I've got a big God, he can kill a giant, I'll go fight for him. And so the nation of Israel puts forth David to represent the entire nation, right? And so you know how this, how this happened. Goliath announced it. He says, if I win, 
the entire nation of uh, the Philistines wins and you will serve us. And if he wins, the entire nation of uh, the Philistines will serve the Israelites and we will be your, sa- your, your slaves. What that theological term is called is federal headship. One represents them all. If this one wins, we all win. If this one loses, we all lose. That particular story is super interesting because it teaches us about the idea of union with Christ, that we have a representative who can stand in before us. And if Jesus Christ defeats sin, death, and Satan, those who are in him win. But if sin, death, and Satan defeat Jesus, all that are in Jesus lose. Federal headship teaches us the story of union with Christ, that you want to be in, you want to be with the one that wins, that defeats Satan. And that, that story is beautiful, whispering the narrative of union with Christ. And there's a whole lot more stories in the Old Testament that teach us the doctrine of union and communion with God through a divine means. And that leads us up to the story of the New Testament when Christ enters the scene. And at the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus, what does he do? Does Jesus tell us a new story? Does he share with us new ways to get to God, to be saved? No. What Jesus does is he points back to the Old Testament the entire time he's alive, showing us how he is the fulfillment of our need how he's the particular means. And he's always been the particular means. He's the fulfillment of all of those whispers. Here's an example. Remember when John the Baptist is baptizing in the river and he sees Jesus. What does he declare? He declares, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John recognizes him as the promised means. That was the one. He's the one that's going to bring back union and communion with God. He's the promised Passover lamb. He's the one that was going to restore our relationship, that was heal, heal our people. John knew it, and Jesus knew it as well. Jesus tells the, the, his followers this story in John chapter 15. Jesus unpacks the theology of union with Christ himself. He says to them over and over again, in me. He doesn't say we are just attached to the vine or we are on the vine, but we must be in the vine. This is what it says in John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. That in uh, in me, many may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned." If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for me. Jesus understands there's only two types of people in the world. Those that are in Christ and those who are still in their sin. Those who have eternal life and those who will perish. And then Paul, Peter, and John, as they write the rest of the, most of the rest of the New Testament, they they pick up on this and discuss this in their letters as well. That all of us have a need 
And that need is to be either to be adopted. Like we're on the outside, but we've got to be brought inside so that we can receive the benefits. You have to be adopted. You have got to be grafted in. You need to be bought back or ransomed. They pick up on this theme of you're far off, but you can be brought near. And God has provided particular means. And that means is only Jesus Christ. And then this is how the Bible ends. We get to Revelation. The very last chapters of Revelation, there's a question. And the question is, who gets eternal life? Who gets in? Who gets to have union and communion with God forever? And here's how Revelation chapter 21 puts it. It says this, Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's two types of people. One type in Christ. Their names are literally written in his book, in the Lamb's book of life. They're in. Those that are in Christ get union and communion forever. And those who aren't are out. Again, from page one to the final page, we are taught the only way to union and communion with the Father is by being associated with the particular means. And that person is Jesus Christ. So to summarize today, just to wrap it all up, I want to again teach you why is union with Christ so important? And it's because it teaches us the story of the gospel, the story of the Bible, and our most important needs. Number one, it teaches us man's original design and God's plan. God created you to be in union and communion with him. That was his original design, and that is his ultimate purpose, that you will have him, you will be in communion with him for all of eternity. But union with Christ also teaches us about our need. See, in Genesis 3, because of federal headship, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. We were in Adam. He was our representative. He failed the test in the garden, so did we all. Because he sinned, we all sinned. Therefore, we have a great need. We have a great problem. And the problem only has one solution. Union with Christ teaches us there's only one solution. And that is we need a savior. We need a mediator. We need a substitute. We need someone to restore union and communion with God. And we can't invent it. We can't make it up on our own. I can't clothe myself in, in uh, Jacob's clothing to get the birthright. I can't figure this out. I can't row my ark hard enough. I can't swim far enough. There's no, I can't build a house strong enough. There's nothing I can do to solve my sin problem. Only God's means, which he put forth, can save me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we get clothed in the righteousness we need? By a substitute. Jesus Christ is the only means that solves the problem. And then lastly, union with Christ teaches us the benefits. The benefits of being united with Christ. This is what I believe Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all about. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is the list of all the benefits. 
It's the will that is read to the heirs. You come together, you open Ephesians chapter one, for those who are in Christ, this is what is true of you. This is why Paul is just gushing about in Christ, in Christ this, in Christ this, in Christ this, in Christ this. It's all the benefits. Everything you get, even though you never once picked up a sword, you're recipients of all the benefits of what Christ did on your behalf, if you're in him. And if you're not, none of the benefits. You'll be utterly destroyed. That's the story of the gospel. I want to just summarize everything we've discussed in just a simple take-home truth today. And our simple take-home truth today is this, that union and communion with the Father is only possible by being in Christ. That is what makes union with Christ so important. I just want to explain this real quick. If you believe that union and communion with the Father is important, you're religious. If you believe that union and communion with the Father is only possible by being in Christ, then you're a Christian. And there's a vast difference. Being religious doesn't make you in. By believing in Christ as your federal head, your new federal head, your savior, your redeemer, the one who bought you back, your substitute. That's how you get in. I have to read this for you. I didn't make this up. It's just too good not to read. Can I read this for you? It says this. I read it this week. Only by being in Christ can one have access to every spiritual blessing. If you are in Christ, then Christ's riches are your riches. His resources are your resources. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. His position is our position. Where he is, we are. What he has, we have. And because we are in Christ, though opposition surrounds us on every side, we are secure in him. Your identity, therefore, is in Christ, not in your performance, your popularity, your productivity, or your prominence. Praise God, because I'm terrible at all those last things. My only hope is Jesus Christ. If I've got a row, if I've got a build, if I've got to do, I'm done. Praise God that there's someone, a means to eternal life. So last question, we're done. How does one get in? How does one become in Christ? Because there's a group of people here today watching online maybe, and it's even possible that some in this room are in and some are not. How do I get in? That sounds great, Travis. I want in. I want all the benefits. I want the blessings. I want an eternal life forever. How do I get in? I want to go back to a story I mentioned real quickly, which is Numbers chapter 21. Remember the snake? The snake's biting all the people. Moses lifts up a bronze serpent and says, anyone who looks at the bronze serpent will be saved. Well, Jesus summarizes this story and he explains this story in John chapter 3. This is what Jesus says in John chapter three, verses 14 and 15. He says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That's Jesus. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You want in? It's so simple, a two-year-old can figure it out. A four-year-old can figure out that Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Do you believe in Jesus? 
You believe that in your sin, you deserve eternal destruction. But because of God's love, he sent forth Christ to die on a cross for your sins. And whoever looks to Jesus, as you look at that serpent, whoever looks to Jesus for life, for eternal life will be saved. Church, there's only two types of people, those that are in and those that are out. I desperately desire for you to be in. And it's so simple. You could believe in Jesus, that he is the savior of the world who died on the cross for their sins. Are you in Christ? Have you trusted in his death as your only hope for eternal life? You're either still in your sins or you're in Christ. Don't just be religious. Be a Christian. Believe in Christ, that he is your only hope. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.